From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. The month of October has a lot going for it. The weather is the best of the year, apple cider donuts are plentiful, the foliage is pretty, all of these things are very nice. But for me, the best part of October is the start of a new professional basketball season. I am obsessed with the NBA. I love the games themselves, which feature the best athletes in the world defying gravity in mind-blowing ways night after night. I also love the drama during the offseason, with blockbuster trades moving star players from team to team more than any other sport. I love the online community of NBA fans, especially the unhinged group of people that follows my beloved, constantly aggravating Philadelphia 76ers. If you flip on a marquee matchup on ESPN or ABC sometime this NBA season, you'll probably hear the voice of my guest today, play-by-play announcer Mike Breen. Mike is widely regarded as one of the best announcers in the world in any sport. He informs without over-explaining. He shows excitement and love of the game without being cheesy. He perfectly captures the energy in the arena for those of us watching at home. It's no surprise he has announced the NBA Finals a record 15 times and received the top media award from the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2020. Mike is a proud alum of Fordham University and a deeply committed Catholic. I invited him on the show to talk about what he loved the most about returning to the arena after announcing dozens of games from his house during the pandemic. We also talked about all the work that goes into his job and the hours and even days before a big game tips off. I also asked him about his faith and his time at Fordham. I loved this conversation, and it got me even more excited for the start of the season next week. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Mike Breen, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you today? I'm just just fine. Thanks, Mike. Nice to meet you. Nice to talk to you. So uh, excited to, to have you on to talk a little bit about some of your, your Jesuit connections. You're a Fordham grad, uh, have some, je- and then also broader Catholic connections. We can at- talk a little bit about that. But um, first, I, I just want to ask you about, about your work. You've been uh, connected to the NBA for a long time, announcing all kinds of uh, in- incredible games and, and series and the NBA finals uh, a whole bunch of times. Um, but we're coming out of this, this time in sports and the NBA that's been unlike any other and just curious for you like what 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 that's what that time has been like i know you had to do your work remotely which for calling a game is really hard so yeah just tell me about what that experience was like well i, I won't say it's difficult but i will say it was quite a challenge um during the whole pandemic and in, in doing games sometimes from my basement sometimes from a studio off a monitor um and always without no fans which was a bizarre experience And uh, one of the main things I came away with once we started getting back to normal last year, especially during the playoffs, was how important fans are to the whole sports experience. Uh, Somebody sent out a a, a tweet, and I I can't remember who it was. It might not have been original, but they said that fans are the oxygen of pro sports. And I thought that was perfect. Um, So this past year, even, you know, a year after being in that Orlando bubble for so long, and you were so isolated um, to have the fans back 
uh, when Phoenix played Milwaukee in the finals and throughout the playoffs, when the Knicks finally made it back into the playoffs, it was um, not only was it inspiring to hear that noise, but it was emotional. It was, you know, Mike, it was like, you know, we've all seen those videos when uh, people were reunited with their families. They hadn't seen their parents in months and months and, and watching them were so touching. Uh, it was the same thing with the fans, only it wasn't your, your blood family. It was your NBA family. And it really was like a family reunion, people getting back. And, and uh, it was a little more emotional than I expected. And I know for a lot of other people. So, um, you know, it was another challenge. It was a, a, just an incredibly interesting experience uh, to go through as a broadcaster. And I'm glad we were able to, to uh, still bring the games to the fans. So when you come back to an in-person experience after that time calling in all kinds of strange ways, what was like one or two things you noticed when you came back? Maybe things you had taken for granted before. You mentioned the fans. Like what, what kind of specific things did you notice and say, oh, I didn't even realize I was missing this um, when I was calling games from my basement? Well, there's always, especially when it's a big game or any playoff game, um, you know, you hear there, there's electricity in the air or there's a buzz in the air. And one of my favorite times of every game is right before the game when people are about to sit down and watch what they hope is something special. And I love that buzz. It gives a building the adrenaline. It gives myself as a broadcaster that little extra oomph, that little extra adrenaline to get me fired up for the game. And you, I completely forgot about that. I can't remember the first time, um, but it was one of those games I'm, I'm sitting right four or five minutes before tip-off and I got that feeling again. And I said, wow, I said, boy, did I, did I miss that feeling? And, and another thing, too, this is going to sound so silly, um, but going and, and, you know, fans are always nice. Sometimes they'll throw some barbs at you, but most of the time they're so polite and they just want to talk. Remember a fan came up. It was right after things started back to normal and he stuck out his hand and we weren't shaking hands anymore. And I remember shaking his hand. And it felt so wonderful uh, to have that human contact again. So even though like the roar of the crowd is obviously the obvious answer, sometimes it's the little subtleties that, that made the difference. So I do want to ask you about the bubble. If people are not big NBA fans, they might forget that the players and a few journalists and the team staffs went to Orlando for what a couple of months. You were there playing all the games on that campus that worked out very well. They were able to kind of have the whole end of the regular season that they had adjusted in, in the playoffs. Um, so you were, you were staying there and, and living there for that time. And how do you keep yourself sane in the middle of all that? Well, um, I was there for about 80 days down in Orlando and, and for ESPN, we were, we were at one hotel, all the players and the NBA teams were at other hotels, but you were pretty much, you had to kind of stay at your hotel, able to obviously drive to the arena and go to an arena that didn't have any fans, call the games, then go right back to the hotel. Um, there weren't a lot of um, options in terms of socializing. Obviously, we had to do social distancing. So more often than not, you're having room service or Uber Eats uh, back in your room every night. Um, you relied on television at night and obviously FaceTiming with your family. Um, and then during the day, the one thing that kind of helped us through was there was a beautiful golf course on the grounds of the hotel we were at. So we could play golf uh, quite a bit. And if it wasn't for that, we would have got a little, little stir crazy. So um Again, you know, there's a there's a special bond when you experience that with people. I had the same experience like whenever you do an Olympics and you go to another country and you're there for, you know, maybe 30 days. 
um, you develop that family feel and that bond. And that's what many of us did because we're all in this together. And we knew it was a challenge. Again, nothing, nothing overly difficult, but it was more of a mental challenge. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it was, again, an experience that, although I wouldn't want to do it again, I'm glad I was able to do it with some people that, uh, that I did it with. Yeah. So there's all of those other hours in your day, right? So if I tune in and watch you, I'm watching you for two and a half hours during a game, and that is my interaction with you. But there's all this other work that goes into your, your job, things I might not even think about. Things I'm sure were different in the pandemic. Maybe you could get back to some of them now. But what what take us behind the scenes a little? What goes into preparation for say finals game one this year between uh, the Bucks and the Suns? What what are you doing in the hours or days before to get ready for that? Well, uh, that's that's kind of you to ask because that really is where all the work is done. Um, you know, there might be some people that, that think that we just show up at the arena and call the game, but it's it's an all day preparation thing. First thing I do when I get up after. You know, um, I have my my cup of green tea that I have every morning as I sit in front of uh, my iPad or computer and I go through all the clips and stories about each team. Then you go through all the game notes um, with various stats and try and figure out which ones you're going to use. There's so much material now that I could spend 10 hours uh, reading stories every game that I do. And you have to figure out a way at some point to, all right, that's enough. Um, so you gather all this information, uh, you make phone calls, uh, back when there's not a pandemic, you, you go to the arena and you talk with players, you talk with coaches, you talk with referees, you talk with other broadcasters and you just get as much material as possible. So you're prepared. And for me, that's, that's the key. I, I, I want to be prepared when I sit down to call a game that, that I feel I can, I can handle everything. Um, but a key with that is even though you have all this preparation material, you can't want to just jam it into a game. Uh, I think the key is you let the game dictate what, um, what information that you use. For example, I might have four great stories about uh, the starting center for the Phoenix Suns, but if he picks up three quick fouls in the first quarter and he only plays nine minutes, I'm certainly not going to try and jam these great stories. I want to tell them, but you can't do it. You have to let the game dictate. Um, but it's just a lot of accumulation, both on a daily basis and throughout the season that you get that you hope you can have some information to give the fans that they'll be interested in. So you're doing some of that background. You're obviously calling the game in front of you, keeping really watching very carefully to see what's going on, the stories that are unfolding in the game. You also have an interesting position in your two jobs, both for the the Knicks and ESPN, in that you have some broadcast partners who have big personalities. Uh, You work with the Knicks with uh, Walt Clyde Frazier, who's just this great color commentator, bigger than life guy. And then ESPN in between Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson, again, guys with big opinions and just really, how do you, so how do you, in the middle of all that you have, that you have to do also kind of keep those relationships going? Uh, and yeah, what are some of the, the secrets you have for, for navigating uh, interesting color commentary partnerships? Well, first of all, that Mike, that's the joy of the job. Um, and I, Walt Frazier was was my basketball idol when I was a kid, and now he's this lifelong friend. And uh, Mark and Jeff, we've we've all grown up together uh, from back when I first started doing radio with the Knicks back in the early '90s. Um, so to be able to share these experiences and these wonderful basketball moments with them is is just off the charts, and it's all part of uh, of teamwork. I, I tell people that I fell in love with the game of basketball because I always loved the team aspect of the, you know, five guys working together or five girls working together on a court and, and 
uh, maybe had the ability because they work so well together to beat a team that, that has much more talent. That, that always so appealed to me. Well, broadcasting basketball is the same way. It's such a team effort that one can't succeed without the other. And, you know, because I've worked with all of those that you mentioned with Mark and Jeff and Clyde for so long, um, you get that continuity, you get that chemistry and, and a feeling. And it takes a while to get there sometimes. Um, but for me, it's easy because whether it's Clyde, whether it's Mark, whether it's Jeff, uh, I just have to take a step back and let them shine because they have so many interesting things to say, whether it's basketball knowledge, whether it's pop culture references, or whether it's just good old-fashioned banter and teasing. Um, it's, it really is the joy of the job. Looking back at your all of the games you've done, again, I think a record for most finals ever uh, announced. Do you have a, a favorite game or a favorite call you ever had that you know that you'll remember as long as your memory is working? Um, that's that's pretty impossible to uh, to pick one. Uh, uh, Mike, I've been so blessed to call so many uh, great games played by these extraordinary athletes. Um, you know, I, I would think that. Um, any game seven is big. Um, the game seven uh, between Golden State and Cleveland, when the Cavs came back from 3-1 down in the series to win the first championship in Cleveland in over 50 years, um, that was special. LeBron James made a block that, that changed the whole outcome of the game. Um, Ray Allen shot in game six of the finals against the Spurs. If he misses that shot, San Antonio wins the title. Uh, it's amazing how one basket can make the difference between a championship and for many, uh, the history and narrative of their careers, whether or not Ray Allen makes that or not. So uh, games like that, um, they're also, you know, one of my favorite times was the Jeremy Lin, Lin Sanity era with the New York Knicks. Here, this young man who came out of nowhere and for two weeks was probably the most famous athlete in the world in terms of the reach and impact that he had and what it meant to so many people. Uh, and I'm always a sucker for the um, for the underdog story. So there, there's a lot I could I guess in the next hour telling you uh, telling you favorite moments. Uh, oh, I know. So blessed. Sure. Um, one of the players you mentioned there, LeBron James, famous not only for his play, obviously, but it really has been one of the leading voices and activists within the NBA, which is something we've seen really explode across the league in, I don't know, the past five years or so, just these players who are really committed to social causes. What has that been like for you to, to see? Do you think that's a positive development for the game to have so many players uh, involved in justice issues like they are? Oh, oh my goodness. It's, um, it's beyond extraordinary what they've been able to do. And, and many of them realize the impact that they can have and the impact they have on young people. And, you know, it's, it's informative when, you know, I've always tell people I, I work with, with so many extraordinary young men. So when they have something to say about issues that they feel is important to them and they think that they can educate me, I, I want to listen. I want to listen to what they have to say. And I've learned so much from them uh, during this course. Um, and, and I think that um, not only in the, the activism that they do, but the philanthropic things that so many of these NBA players do that go unseen. You mentioned LeBron James, the, the amount of time and money uh, that he's put into to giving back to his community, whether it's in Cleveland, whether it's in Los Angeles. Um, it's, it's just incredible how much he's done for other people and realizing the importance of, of giving back and paying it forward. And there's so many others like that, not at the level that he has because of the, the type of money and the stature that he has, 
but there's so many others that do things that uh, we never hear about. It's, uh, you know, again, I like to tell people um, if they knew some of these young men in the NBA, I, I'm so impressed with them as, as not just as players, but as teammates, as fathers, as husbands. And uh, they've got a lot to say, and it's, it's wonderful to see that they're not hesitant at all to speak up. So I was excited to invite you on to the show because you are a Fordham grad and so have some Jesuit roots. And I'm just wondering if you have any fond memories from your, your time there or if you got to know any Jesuits or things that uh, you carry with you in your career after having been in school there. Well, um, I grew up uh, in Yonkers, right on the Yonkers Bronx line in New York. And um, it was about, a, I think it was like a 12 minute drive from the house I grew up in to the Fordham campus. And initially, I wasn't going to go to Fordham. I was one of those that wanted to go away to school. I had to go away, you know, go live somewhere else. But the school that I planned on going to when I went up to visit was like, no, this is not for me. And Fordham in the Bronx uh, in that community just seemed like the perfect fit. And they had a college radio station, which was the number one reason that that I went to Fordham, because I knew I wanted to get into broadcasting. And right from the start, it just uh, Fordham is like... It's like New York City in many ways in that it's the ultimate melting pot. There were all different kinds of, of people from all places around the, around the country and around the world. And I just I met so many people um, that had such interesting stories, interesting lives, uh, not only students, but teachers. And it just felt like a, a family community college where everybody was in this together. And it was a little intimidating at first, um, but you learn to embrace it and that you learn so much about other people. And uh, it just, for me, it was, it was a fantastic experience. And, and obviously the college radio station for me was, was the key. And that was equally as, as I mean, just perfect for me. I know in your career since then, you've, you've also been involved in a lot of uh, charitable things, maybe inspired by uh, the men for others uh, motto of the, the Jesuits, but I know you've been connected with Catholic charities on Long Island, uh, been involved with the garden of dreams, uh, the Knicks philanthropic things. What are some of the causes that have been really important to you uh, over the years? Well, um, you know, it does, it, it changes. As you said, the Garden of Dreams, uh, which is an incredible organization that not only does it, it help out young people, but it stays with them over time. It's not just a one shot thing where, hey, we're going to do this for you. We're going to give you money or help you. They, they keep tabs on people for years and years and, and, and get them going and help their careers and help their lives. Um, there's a, a children's hospital in Bayside called St. Mary's that was always very close, close to my heart, uh, that I worked with for a long time. And now things, you know, things change. My, my dad, uh, passed away, uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, complications. So I've become a little involved in the Michael J. Fox's foundation. Um, he's somebody that has inspired me as much as anyone that I've ever met. Um, so all that kind of stuff. And, you know, Mike, it, it goes back to um, it goes back to the way you grew up. And my mother and father, they just, you know, they were people who looked to help others and cared about others. And that influence is bigger than any possible influence you can ever have. Um, so the Jesuit, um, just the whole Jesuit lifestyle was so appealing to me because I always felt that that's the way my parents lived. They lived for others. And that's what I wanted to do. And, and Fordham certainly um, reinforced that with me. I, two of my sons went to Regis High School in the city. Uh, so they are full of, of the Jesuit um, compassion gene, shall we say. Um, so it's, it's something that, uh, that's been a big part of my life. 
Oh, that's great. I know you've talked about your, your Catholic faith too, as something that's been uh, important to you. And just if you have any reflections on the role that your, your faith has played in your life. Well, it's, it's guided me my entire life. And again, it goes back to, to my parents. Um, and it, it's more than, you know, we, we went to church every day and I went to Catholic school um, my entire life, uh, both grade school, high school, and then obviously at, at Fordham. Um, so it was every part of my life in terms of the teachings, but it was as much as anything, it said the example that, that my mother and father showed, and I was one of six boys and showed all of us, was that's, that's what it's all about, the lifestyle. And, you know, for me, uh, having God by my side throughout my life in the good times has been wonderful because it, it, it brings about a humility and how blessed I am and how grateful I am and, and, and how God has blessed me. And then, of course, through the, the challenges and the difficult times that you know he's there by your side. I mean, we all go through ups and downs in terms of our faith and our strength and um, but it's, it's, it's guided me my whole life. I've tried to pass that along to my children. I hope that's a big part of their lives as well. But my parents did very well in, in showing me the examples. Um, even to this day, like I just started reading um, uh, James Martin's book, Learning to Pray, because we go through, you know, we go through stretches where like, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not good at, at praying right now. And, uh, you know, you just try and get better. You have your ups and downs. I know I'm kind of babbling on here, but the bottom line, Mike, is that my faith has guided me my entire life. Well, Father Father Martin is a friend of the podcast, so I'll let him know uh, that uh, you picked up his most recent book. Yeah, he's a great great writer and a great resource, certainly. Well, I've seen him. I've tried to go see him whenever he's been in my area. I've seen him speak about three or four times. Uh, and um, you just, you know, he's, he's an amazing man who has had an impact on so many, including myself. So I, I know we have already over the time I asked for, and I really appreciate that. But if we could do one quick question, I need you to come down as a judge on something. So I, a few during like the uh, NCAA tournament, which is a big thing for Jesuits. I had uh, your colleague at ESPN, John Gassaway, come on. He wrote a book about Catholic college hoops. Um, and so we drafted teams of all all time Jesuit players, max of one per school. So I gave him the first pick because, I, you know, I was a, a gracious host. So this is the five team, the five players he came up with. He has Bill Russell from University of San Francisco, Dwayne Wade from Marquette, Jameer Nelson from St. Joe's, Bob Cousy from Holy Cross and Doug McDermott from Creighton. I had Elgin Baylor. Uh, from Seattle University, who had just passed away that week. Uh, Alan Iverson from Georgetown, of my beloved Sixers. Steve Nash uh, from Santa Clara. Hank uh, Gathers from Loyola Marymount. And David West from Xavier. So you put those 10 guys in the prime of their career on the court. Who do you think is going to win in a seven-game series? Wow. Well, I by the way, you almost got through this entire segment without mentioning your Sixers. So I was almost going to say I'm I couldn't help. <laughs> um I, I'm, I think I'm going to have to go with with the Bill Russell team ah. just because they have they have a lot of talent. And he just he was one of those great teammates who one of those who made everybody around him better and found a way to win. So it's it's kind of hard to argue with 11 NBA titles, Mike. 
That's true. That's true. My question for John was, though, who's Bob Cousy going to guard uh, on my team? So, no, I, I no, I that that that's fair. I think we put a Twitter poll out and he he did win. Um, but all right, that's fair. Um, I'll, I'll take the loss on that. But uh, again, you can't go wrong with Jesuit hoops. We got so many uh, luminaries. Um, so, well, Mike Green, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Uh, really uh, appreciate it. And uh, best of luck as we get ready for training camp in the, the new NBA season just around the corner. Well, thank you, Mike. Again, it's been a pleasure meeting you and talking with you. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.